This is a Scream Queen production. of So Dead. I'm your host, Jen Carpenter. Today's episode starts with a question. What do the cities of Benton Harbor, Michigan, Manitowoc, Wisconsin, and Ludington, Michigan have in common besides murder? Aliens. (laughs) As far as murders go, Manitowoc is, of course, the home of the Avery clan and ground zero for the docuseries Making a Murderer, which We've all seen by now, in some capacity, if only in the memes, right? Benton Harbor is slash was home to Michigan's infamous long-haired cult, the House of David, which we've talked about on the show, and Ludington borders Manistee National Forest, where countless bodies have been dumped over the years, including the body of Rachel Timmerman, which I talked about back in season two of the show. But today, shockingly... We're not going to be talking about murder very much. Uh, We're going to be talking about aliens, maybe, probably. Uh, Raise your hand if you have heard of the Bermuda Triangle. Now put your hand down because I can't see you and you're probably driving, which requires you to use both hands. Um, If you're listening to a true crime podcast, and spoiler alert, you are, Chances are you were obsessed with all things weird and spooky as a kid, and that includes the Bermuda Triangle. I know that I definitely had a big, big thing. Like, we're going to figure this thing out, right? What's what's this Bermuda Triangle mystery? Yeah, no, we, we never figured it out. Located in the North Atlantic Ocean, the triangular shaped area between Miami, Bermuda, and Puerto Rico has been responsible for the disappearances of dozens of ships and planes over the decades, many of them under suspicious circumstances. My core memory of the Bermuda Triangle is the time that David Copperfield did a show there when I was like eight. Uh, You can still watch that on YouTube, but yeah. But what if I told you that there is another triangle, much closer to home, that is responsible for more disappearances per unit area than the Bermuda Triangle. It's called the Lake Michigan Triangle because it is in the middle of Lake Michigan. What, right? (laughs) Mind blown. The northeast point is the city of Ludington, which I'm sure many of you have visited on a beautiful summer day. Then it stretches north across the lake to Manitowoc, Wisconsin, then all the way south to Benton Harbor, Michigan, home of the House of David, which means the eastern side of that triangle, the Ludington to Benton Harbor side, spans the majority of Lake Michigan's coastline. 
If you're from Michigan, there's like a 90% chance that you've been to a Lake Michigan beach at some point in your lifetime, which means you have been swimming or boating or fishing in a triangle, like a Bermuda-ish triangle, and you didn't even know it. If you're not from Michigan, here is what you need to know for this episode. The Great Lakes aren't like other lakes. That's what makes them great. Lake Michigan is the third largest lake in the U.S. at just over 22,000 square miles. Only Lake Huron and Lake Superior are bigger. The Great Lakes, just as a whole, make up the top five biggest lakes in the country, and that's why they're called the Great Lakes. But outside of the Great Lakes, outside of the lakes that surround our little mitten-shaped state, the next largest lake is the Great Salt Lake in Utah, and that is just over 2,000 square miles. So Lake Michigan is 20,000 square miles bigger than the largest non-Great Lake in the U.S. That's, That's how much bigger these lakes are than the lakes that you're probably used to seeing and swimming and catching fish in. Lake Michigan borders four states, Michigan, Indiana, Illinois, and Wisconsin. And I mean, it's essentially an ocean. I didn't see the ocean. I I didn't go visit the ocean for the first time until I was in my 30s. And and maybe I've talked about this before. I can't remember. But I expected it to be like this spiritual, life-changing experience. But aside from, you know, the added spiciness of possible shark attacks, it was not a lot different than standing on the Lake Michigan shoreline looking out over the water. Out-of-staters are always so surprised by the magnitude of the Great Lakes. So as we get into this episode, don't let the word lake confuse you. Lake Michigan is nothing like your summer hangout swimming hole lake. It is much more like the ocean. So just picture that for this episode, a sharkless ocean. Now, this is how the website The Vintage News describes the Mitten's own little geometric shape of mystery. The Lake Michigan Triangle is believed to have caused numerous shipwrecks and aerial disappearances over the years. It's also been the scene of unexplained phenomena, from mysterious ice blocks falling from the sky to balls of fire and strange hovering lights. This has led many to believe extraterrestrials are drawn to the area— or that it's home to a time portal. And here I thought the Great Lakes were safe because they are sea creature free. But no, apparently not. Can't have anything anymore. The Lake Michigan Triangle tragedies date all the way back to the 1600s, at least as far as official records go. When it was built in 1679, the sailing vessel Le Griffon that is the griffin in English, in case you are wondering. Uh, The griffin was the largest ship on the Great Lakes at 45 tons. It had a big pirate shippy looking mast with a French flag at the top, seven cannons, a giant griffin sculpture on the front, and an eagle sculpture on the back. It was said that the local Seneca and Iroquois tribes felt so threatened by the construction of this large ship on their waters that they felt it was a threat to the Great Spirit. They tried on more than one occasion to set it on fire before it launched. So it wasn't just the biggest ship that had ever, you know, hit the Great Lakes. It was the first big ship. So 
only canoes had ever traveled the Great Lakes at this point. And then here they're building this fucking Jack Sparrow ship and the tribes were not comfortable with it at all. So they kept trying to set it on fire and burn it down. When that didn't work, an Iroquois prophet was said to have cursed the ship. He told the captain, She will sink beneath the deep waters, and your blood shall stain the hands of those in whom you trusted. On August 7, 1679, the ship set sail on her maiden voyage with a crew of 32 men on a mission to find a route from the Great Lakes to Japan and China, so like a northwestern passage to China and Japan, so that they could expand their trade options in the New World. The ship boldly went where no man had gone before, on a big-ass ship at least. Again, those uncharted waters that they traveled through Lake Erie, Lake Huron, and Lake Michigan had only previously been explored by canoe. They stopped at ports along the Detroit River, Saginaw Bay, Mackinac Island, Green Bay, Wisconsin, collecting furs and dispersing crew members along the way, just just kind of leaving their guys here, there, and everywhere. So that when the Griffin left Green Bay on September 18th, 1679, to head for home after a month and a half long voyage, there were only six crew members left out of the 32 that started the journey. Even the captain himself had disembarked at that point, opting to remain in Green Bay while his crew delivered his haul of $12,000 worth of fur back to his home turf on the Niagara River. That was $12,000 worth of fur in 1600. So we're talking almost a million dollars in today's money, according to the internet. Even that doesn't seem right. It seems like it should be higher, right? But the Griffin never made it home. Somewhere in the deep, dark, frigid Lake Michigan waters in an area that would later become known as the Lake Michigan Triangle, the ship simply disappeared along with its crew and a million dollars worth of fur. The most common theory is that the ship went down in a storm, but the captain himself believed that his crew had committed mutiny, sank the ship, and absconded with all of that fur. Others believe that Native Americans finally carried out a successful arson mission, that they boarded the ship, killed the crew, stole the furs, and then set the ship on fire. I feel like there would have been, like, evidence of that, right? <laughs> like, if you burned an entire ship down in the middle of the water, that would there, there would be some something. But others still believed that the griffin fell victim to that pesky curse, the whole she will sink beneath the deep waters thing. That theory gained even more support when the second half of the prophecy, your blood shall stain the hands of those you trusted, came true in 1687 when the Griffin's captain was murdered by a member of a new crew on a new expedition. The Griffin is considered the holy grail for Great Lakes shipwreck hunters, and I found no less than a dozen articles claiming that the wreck had been found, only for most of those claims to later be debunked. One shipwreck hunter from Charlevoix, Michigan, is so convinced that he found the Griffin in 2018, he wrote a whole-ass book about it called Le Griffon and the Huron Islands, 1679, our story of explanation and discovery. So if you want to read more on the most mysterious shipwreck slash disappearance on Lake Michigan, that's the book for you. 
The next documented strange occurrence in the Lake Michigan Triangle took place over 200 years after the disappearance of the Griffin. On July 12, 1883, the tugboat Mary McLean was tugging along, <laughs> chugging along, I don't know, uh, Lake Michigan right off the Chicago Harbor. At around 6 p.m., large bricks of ice began falling from the cloudless sky. Not hail, these were seamen, sea men, sea men. They were used to hail in all kinds of storm weather, but these were actual bricks of ice that dented the deck of the boat and sent the crew scattering. The weird phenomena lasted for a full half hour. Knowing that nobody would believe them, the crew grabbed one of these ice bricks that landed on deck and threw it into their ice box and took it back to land with them. It weighed over two pounds. There were no other reports of ice brick attacks that day, just in the Lake Michigan Triangle. The Thomas Hume was a 132-foot lumber schooner that operated on Lake Michigan in the late 1800s. Built in Manitowoc, Wisconsin in 1870, the ship was purchased by Hume and Hackley Lumber in Muskegon, Michigan, and it routinely transported lumber back and forth between Muskegon and Chicago. In May of 1891, the ship took a haul of lumber to Chicago. On May 21st, the Thomas Hume began its voyage back to Muskegon, but disappeared in the Lake Michigan Triangle along with its six-man crew. The ship had been sailing home alongside one of its sister ships, the Rouse Simmons, when they were hit by a squall severe enough to send the Rouse Simmons running right back to Chicago to wait out the storm but the captain of the Thomas Hume was stubborn, and he pressed on. The ship was never seen again. Some of the reports I've read try to make this one sound a lot more mysterious than it is, saying things like, the ship was made of lumber and it was loaded with thousands of tons of lumber, but not one piece of lumber was found floating in the water. And the ship was indeed made of lumber, but it had dropped its haul in Chicago and was on its way back home to Muskegon empty. So no, it was not loaded with lumber. And if the ship just sank, there wouldn't necessarily be, you know, pieces of wood floating on the surface because it was not loaded with lumber. Thank you. The mystery around the disappearance of the Thomas Hume was somewhat resolved in 2005, when the perfectly intact ship was found at the bottom of Lake Michigan. While there were no obvious signs of damage beyond, you know, the obvious wear and tear that's expected on a ship that's been at the bottom of the ocean for over 100 years, the sinking of the Thomas Hume was simply attributed to stormy weather. But the Rouse Simmons, the other ship that was traveling with the Thomas Hume that day and had the good sense to turn back, could not escape the wrath of the Lake Michigan Triangle. Like an installment of Final Destination, death just kept coming for the wooden vessel, which became known as the Christmas Tree Ship. After its stint as part of the Hackley and Hume lumber fleet, the Rouse Simmons was purchased by Herman Schooneman, who used it to transport Christmas trees from Michigan's forests to Chicago. Unlike his competitors, who sold their murdered forest trees to wholesalers and grocery stores, Herman sold the trees right from the Chicago Harbor on the dock. He decorated the Rouse Simmons with Christmas lights, put a Christmas tree atop the mast. He became known as Captain Santa, and people could come get right on the boat 
for a unique shopping experience and also cheaper Christmas trees because he had cut out that that middleman, right? On November 22nd, 1912, Captain Santa left Thompson Harbor in Michigan's Upper Peninsula with 5,500 trees loaded onto the Christmas tree ship. Being the kind-hearted man that he was, he offered a ride to some lumberjacks who had family in Chicago so that they could spend the holidays at home instead of at their lumber camp. Because of this, the passenger log was longer than normal on this day. So there were 16 souls aboard the Christmas tree ship, the captain, his crew, and all of these guests, when it disappeared in Lake Michigan under clear conditions. It was last spotted by a life-saving station, waving a distress flag as it sailed five miles offshore during a storm. So it was storming, but again, it was clear and this life-saving station could see the ship. Because of the way the wind was blowing and the way the waves were flowing, their lifeboats couldn't catch up to the vessel. They were coming kind of from behind to try to catch up with them and they would never catch them. So they radioed another life-saving station a bit further south, which was in the direction the Rouse Simmons was headed, hoping that they could, you know, head them off. So the Two Rivers life-saving station launched a lifeboat to intercept the failing Christmas tree ship. But by the time help arrived... The Christmas tree ship and all 16 of its passengers had simply vanished into thin air. Unlike our other missing ships, though, this one left remnants behind. Christmas trees washed up along the Lake Michigan coastline for years to follow. And in 1923, over a decade after the Rouse Simmons disappeared, Captain Herman Schunemann's wallet was caught in a Wisconsin fisherman's net. In 1971, scuba diver Kent Bell Richard of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, found the remnants of the Rouse Simmons, and it was a missing ship no longer. It went down so violently, whatever happened, storm, rogue wave, it went down so violently that it left a 10-foot gash at the bottom of Lake Michigan, and it was still loaded with Christmas trees. All right, so right now you guys are probably thinking to yourself, like, this is all interesting and all, but Jen, what about the aliens? Here they come. November 26th, 1919 was Thanksgiving Eve. It was cold, foggy, rainy, dark. You guys know what Novembers are like here in Michigan. They're miserable. And then just before 8 p.m., the sky lit up with a phosphorescent glow. The ground began to shake, windows and houses began to break, electric and phone service went out, and then, according to the lighthouse keeper at Grand Haven, what looked like a ball of fire appeared to fall in the lake about 15 miles south of me. I thought it was a falling star. I could hear it whistle during its terrific rush toward the water. When it seemed to strike the water, a flash of flame shot into the air and caused a great disturbance. While scientists who were nowhere near the site of the incident quickly wrote it off as a meteor, local officials weren't so sure. The headline of the Grand Rapids Press the next day read, Meteor fell in lake, or there was a quake. Aurora went on a spree, or dot, 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 something happened. (laughs) 
The fancy scientists of today still believe the event was a meteor strike, but locals are less sure, as strange lights have been spotted several more times over the years in the exact same spot, just kind of hovering there right over the Lake Michigan Triangle. The Rosabelle was a wooden double-masted schooner owned by, wait for it, wait for it, you guys know how much I love it when worlds collide, owned by the House of David. As I expect you all to recall with complete clarity, the House of David was a long-haired baseball-playing cult that fell apart due to a sex scandal involving their king and underage girls, which... How strange, considering that abstinence was the House of David's number one rule. Now, part of the whole sex scandal situation involved a sketchy little island the House of David owned called High Island. If you're a longtime listener, you know that Michigan does not have a very good history when it comes to islands. North Fox Island was used as home base for an elaborate child pornography ring, Beaver Island was invaded by a Mormon pirate cult, and High Island was used as a secret getaway for House of David members who wished to, allegedly, rape young girls far from prying eyes. And the Rosabelle was the ship that the House of David used to travel back and forth between High Island and their home base in Benton Harbor. On October 30th, 1921, Rosabelle left High Island bound for Benton Harbor with a crew of nine. Or was it 11? Maybe 13? The accounts vary, and I cannot think of a single reason that the House of David would lie about how many people were on board that ship, would you? Hmm, maybe because there were some underage girls on the ship among a bunch of grown-ass men, maybe? Probably? Either way, you know how this story goes by now. Something went very wrong when the ship hit the Lake Michigan Triangle and it simply disappeared. It was found days later near Milwaukee, floating upside down with nary a long-haired cult member in sight. It appeared to have been in a wreck, but there were no reports of a collision or any other missing or damaged ships in the area. So it, it crashed, but nobody knows into what. Now let's talk about George Donner. No, not the George Donner that led the disastrous Donner party and turned his people into cannibals. The George Donner that disappeared in the Lake Michigan Triangle. Let's stay on topic here, people. On April 28, 1937, Captain George R. Donner celebrated his 58th birthday aboard his ship, the O.S. McFarland, or maybe the O.M. McFarland. I read several articles, and it seemed like the name was interchangeable. Every other one was the OS or the OM. Nobody could get it together. We'll just call it the McFarland. Anywho, uh, celebrating might be exaggerating a bit because the captain had spent the better part of the evening navigating through the rough, ice-jammed waters of Lake Michigan. The McFarland was carrying nearly 10,000 tons of coal from Erie, Pennsylvania to Port Washington, Wisconsin. It had traveled through Lake Erie, Lake Huron, and the Straits of Mackinac before hitting the treacherous Lake Michigan Triangle. But the seasoned captain was able to keep his ship out of harm's way, no iceberg collisions to be had, and at 10.15 p.m., when they were just a few hours from port, he turned the helm over to his second mate and he retired to his cabin to get some rest. 
He told the second mate to wake him up when they were about to arrive at their destination. He was seen entering his cabin. He was heard moving about inside his cabin for a bit. But when the second mate went back to wake him three hours later at around 1.15 in the morning, he was nowhere to be found. His door was locked from the inside, so the crew member was, you know, knocking on the door, calling his name to no avail. At first, he just thought the captain was sleeping heavily, but when he got no answer, he had to, you know, break into the door because it was locked from the inside, and he found the captain missing. Couple things. There was only one way in and out of the cabin. The two small port windows in the cabin were not nearly large enough for the captain to have climbed through, fallen through, been pushed through, any of that. And again, the door was locked from the inside, which would indicate that the captain never left the room. But he was gone. Every inch of the ship was searched over and over. Rescue boats searched the surrounding waters. A call was put out to nearby ships to watch for any sign of the missing captain in the water, but he was just gone, vanished into thin air, in his cabin, on his boat, in the middle of the Lake Michigan Triangle. Next up, we've got the most infamous disappearance from the Great Lakes Triangle, the disappearance of an entire fucking airplane full of people. In season one of So Dead, I told you about the crash of Northwest Airlines Flight 255. But before Flight 255, there was Northwest Airlines Flight 2501. On June 23rd, 1950, Northwest Orient Airlines Flight 2501 departed New York bound for Seattle with 55 passengers and three crew members aboard. At 11.37 p.m., while the plane was flying 3,500 feet over the Lake Michigan Triangle, less than 20 miles outside Benton Harbor, the pilot radioed air traffic control to request a descent from 3,500 to 2,500 feet due to an electrical storm. Air traffic control denied the request because there was other planes flying in the area, and seconds later, Flight 2501 disappeared from the radar and was never seen again. There was a storm over Lake Michigan that night, so it's believed that the plane was either struck by lightning or ran into a squall, but nobody's really sure. It was just there, in the sky, with five dozen people on board, and then it wasn't. The next day, search crews made some grisly discoveries in the water. Blankets with the markings NW for Northwest, a plane log, an airplane maintenance report, a little girl's rag doll, bits of clothing with flesh embedded in them, a piece of a woman's skull, and this is a direct quote from the Detroit Free Press, part of what appeared to be a man's back. Before long, so many body parts were washing up on shore that beaches from South Haven to Benton Harbor were temporarily closed. Adding to the confusion and grief of the victims' families was the fact that Northwest was very tight-lipped about details of the plane's disappearance, offering no explanation or consolation. Body parts were quietly buried in mass graves unbeknownst to families, and officials just seemed very eager to keep a tight lid on the whole thing. At the time of Flight 2501's disappearance, it was the worst disaster in aviation history— 
The plane still has not been found despite exhaustive searches over the years, and it remains the only commercial plane in the U.S. of A. to ever just completely disappear. All right, friends, I have saved the weirdest incident for last, only only because it's the most recent. Um, but it, yeah, definitely makes for a grand finale. Let's talk about the disappearance of Stephen Kubacki. In February of 1978, Stephen Kubacki was a 23-year-old senior at Hope College in Holland, Michigan. He was described as brilliant, free-spirited, adventurous, and very outdoorsy, but also a big Dungeons & Dragons guy, so he was (laughs) well-rounded. He'd climbed mountains in Europe. He'd left a love in Germany. He'd lined up a job with the local newspaper after his college. His father was getting ready to sign the family house over to him. Uh, He loved to go cross-country skiing. On February 18th, 1978, Stephen said goodbye to his roommate, and he headed out for a day of skiing and adventuring. When he hadn't returned by the following day, authorities were alerted. They searched the area where Stephen was believed to have been headed, and they found his skis and his backpack near the Lake Michigan shoreline, along with footprints that appeared to indicate Stephen had walked out onto the ice, straight into the Lake Michigan Triangle, where he promptly disappeared. But wait, because this one gets weirder. Stephen was presumed dead. It was theorized that he'd fallen through thin ice on Lake Michigan and drowned in the Triangle. He was awarded his bachelor's degree in absentia. His family back in Massachusetts grieved him. And then, a full 13 months later, Stephen Kabaki came back to life. On May 5th, 1979, Stephen claimed to wake up in a field in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, a full 700 miles and 15 months away from his last memory which was of skiing on a Lake Michigan beach in February of 1978. He had no idea where he was or when he was, although he knew exactly who he was. His memory prior to his disappearance was perfectly intact. He had no idea he'd lost an entire year until he picked up a newspaper and saw the date. He was wearing clothes he didn't recognize, had new shoes, new glasses, $40 in cash, and a backpack full of maps and mementos suggesting he'd traveled the entire country from Chicago to Reno to San Francisco, and now here he was in Massachusetts, his home state. In a very Forrest Gump-like quote before Forrest Gump was a thing, because this was the 70s, uh, he said, I feel like I've done a lot of running. One of the items in his backpack, a t-shirt from a marathon in Wisconsin, suggested that he did at least do a little running. Stephen was reunited with his family. He allowed medical professionals to examine him physically, but he would not consent to a mental evaluation because he was in a perfectly healthy frame of mind. Listen, listen, even if it wasn't a psychotic break or a fugue state or anything like that, How could you be in a perfectly healthy frame of mind waking up over a year after your last memory across the country? I would would not be in a healthy frame of mind if I lost an entire year of my life and no one could tell me where I was or what I... (laughs) There would be no health, no health going on. 
but he he claimed to be perfectly fine. So uh, soon, Stephen stopped speaking to the press about his ordeal. He settled in the Pacific Northwest. He became a psychologist, and he wrote a book called Meta Mathematical Foundations of Existence. And he probably, I would imagine, has not come anywhere near Michigan since the Lake Michigan Triangle did whatever the fuck it did to him. There are a lot of stories about the Lake Michigan Triangle, many of them nothing more than campfire fodder. Even the ones that are based in truth have been embellished to make them sound spookier or more mysterious. Uh, It's 2022. Who gives a shit about facts anymore, right? (laughs) Well, here's a fact. There are over 6,000 shipwrecks at the bottom of the Great Lakes. Like, actively over 6,000 wrecked ships just chilling at the lake bottom. Over 1,500 of those are in Lake Michigan. It stands to reason that some of them would be inside the Lake Michigan Triangle, right? Because let's be transparent here. That triangle takes up the bulk of Lake Michigan's surface area. So, like, the ship thing, I don't know. But what about the disappearing plane? Even though they found enough debris and remains to surmise that the plane had probably exploded, either in the air or when it hit the water, how has not one piece of the actual plane been found? What about these two-pound blocks of ice falling from a clear blue sky or the meteor crashing right down into the middle of the triangle? The missing ship captain from inside a locked room? And what about Stephen fucking Kubacki? Like, that is wild, right? It's weird. Let's make it weirder. What if I told you that not only does Lake Michigan have a triangle, a la its famous ancestor, the Bermuda Triangle, but it also has a Stonehenge. And that Stonehenge is, of course, located inside the Michigan Triangle. In 2007, nearly a mile below the lake's surface, researchers found a peculiar set of aligned stones that appear to be at least 10,000 years old. And on one of those stones, what appears to be a carving of a mastodon. Many of the stones have what look like carvings on them, but this one, you look at it, and I mean, it definitely looks like someone carved an animal into this stone a mile underwater. The location of this discovery has not been shared as it is still being studied by archaeologists and historians and the like, but it just adds more fuel to that raging inferno of a rumor that there's something supernatural or extraterrestrial in nature about the Lake Michigan Triangle. What do you guys think? That's all I've got on the Lake Michigan Triangle today. Thank you for coming to my dead talk. I didn't have like one main source for today's episode. It was a lot of little stories, so a lot of different resources, but I will have them all listed on the page for this episode on the So Dead website. And now it's time for the return of liquid cheese. So uh, last year we were doing this and I was trying to keep it all true crime themed and towards the end I was telling you like, oh, I'm running out of the crime, right? I'm running out of crime themed topics and to discuss and stories, personal stories to tell. Well, as luck would have it, I've got a brand new one because a crime has happened to me. If you follow me on TikTok or 
follow the Dead Time Stories pages on social media, or if we know each other in real life, then you know some of this already. If not, hold on to your butts. So my store, my bookstore and gift store is true crime themed, right? (laughs) So it's full of cameras. And when I leave the store, I turn on alerts. So an alert goes off on my phone if the cameras in the store detect any kind of motion. And I get at least a few alerts a day. It's usually, you know, someone walking by the store really close and they come up to the window, maybe even put their face on the glass. Stop doing that. I have to clean that glass, guys. Or it's a vehicle passing and the headlights hit the wall and cause just the right kind of reflection and the cameras think it's a person. So it's not uncommon for me to get an alert on my phone. And what it says is, I really wish they would word it differently because it is jarring to see these words. It'll say, there is a person at Dead Time Stories or there is a person at the Screamatorium. So December 30th was, I don't know what day of the week. You tell me, you've got a calendar. Uh, I woke up. I was going to be open that day. I know that. So I woke up early that morning, 7, 7.30ish, and I had a bunch of notifications on my phone, one that said, there is a person at your screamatorium. So I clicked on it just to get the notification off my screen um, because I didn't, I didn't think it was going to be anything. And when I clicked the button, it pulled up a snap from the camera. And that snap was of a face, a human face, not a ghost face, a human face staring right back into the camera for a split second before a hand reached up and yanked the camera off the wall. And then in like a very Blair Witch type scene, The rest of the footage was just the camera laying on the floor pointed at the wall. And every now and then you could see like a shadow pass by. It's like seven in the morning. Okay. I am barely awake. I am in my bed, in my pajamas, and my brain cannot process this. Like I know that I need to call 911. I know that I need to call for my husband and start getting ready and head into the store. But all I can do is sit there and stare at this screen, like screaming inside my head. So I snap myself out of it. Um, I call 911. I scream down to Dax, like, we got to go. There's somebody in the store. We got to go. So I'm talking to 911. I'm trying to get ready to go. She asks me, you know, is he still in the store? And I was like, I don't know. I don't know. We threw the camera on the ground. Oh my God, I've got a couch in there that like I take, I rest on. He could be sleeping in my back room. I don't know where he is. And so she's like, you know, chill out. We're going to send a crew. And I told her, you know, we're on our way. We live about 20 minutes out, but we're on our way. We'll be there soon. So As my husband is driving to the shop, I am looking at the surveillance surveillance? (laughs) Surveillance footage and I see, you know, I, I get to see more than just that one scene. You know, it shows him coming in. He comes in on the screamatorium side. He looks around. He goes to the bar and pulls open the drawers. He finds a tablet, like our backup tablet for checking people out. He turns his little flashlight on his camera. He disappears over to the dead time side. He rummages through the desk there, 
comes back over to the screamatorium, and then he steals all my fucking candy. If you've ever been to the screamatorium, you know it's got a big candy cabinet with like vintage type um, lemon salt and cinnamon toothpicks and now and laters and crybabies and wax lips and stuff like that. But I've also got suckers and candy bars and he stole all of that just like big heaping handfuls of blow pops and candy bars and swirly suckers stuffing them into his pockets. Um, And then he kind of does another once around comes back towards the back of the screamatorium, finally sees the fucking camera, um, rips that off the wall, and then, you know, I don't know what else he did from there. Aside from that, he unlocked the front door and he wound up going out the front of the store. Um, So we get there. The police have already cleared the building, which that was crazy footage to watch, too. Later on, um, the police, you know, sweeping the building with guns drawn, yelling. That was, I don't, that was pretty surreal. (laughs) But we got there and, you know, I don't, I don't keep money at the store. Again, true crime store. I don't keep cash there. So he managed to get away with a tablet, a bunch of candy, some rolled change. Thankfully, he was not destructive. You know, some people come in and just start smashing and all of that. All he did was pry open the back door, or so we thought at first. So the police take my statement. They leave. I leave to go home and take a shower because the store's about to open, right? Like we're open for business that day. We're supposed to be. So I run home. I take a shower. By the time I get back to the store, the sun's up and other businesses are opening, and it's been discovered that I was not the candy bandit's only victim he had smashed in the front windows of some shops across the street. What we discovered after we had been open for maybe 20 minutes, half hour, was that the thing he used to smash in the windows across the street was the fucking bracket from my gas meter. He ripped the bracket off my gas meter, and that's what he used to smash open those windows. So before long... We were smelling that rotten egg smell. We had a gas leak. We had to evacuate the store. We had to close for the day. And Consumers Energy spent the whole day there ripping up the parking lot and putting in a new gas meter. So that was super fun. Um, I came home for the second time that day. It's like 2 o'clock in the afternoon that all of this has happened by, like 2 p.m. So I come home. It's about 2 p.m., I walk in the door, my phone rings, and it's an unknown number. And I figure at first that it's just consumer's energy calling with like questions or to tell me that my building blew up because of course it did, you know, something. But it was actually the Lansing Police Department calling to tell me that they'd caught the guy and they needed some information from me to verify that the tablet they found on him was our tablet. And that was pretty easy to prove. It had my husband's email logged into it. So yeah, it was definitely our stuff. I didn't get the candy back. Didn't want it. But just a just a nightmare of a day, right? I spent most of the day just sitting on the couch staring at the wall. And so that night, probably pretty early, probably around like eight o'clock, it was dark out. So I was like, okay, day's over. Uh, I went upstairs and I was going to take a relaxing little bath and my son's bottle can jar, whatever you want to call it, of shaving cream, metal jar of shaving cream can. That would be a can, right? If it's metal. I don't know. 
metal thing of shaving cream was sitting on the edge of the tub. Family size. It's big. It's heavy. I just bought it. I go to pick it up to move it, and the lid was not on fully, so it fell straight down onto my foot. And we all have dropped things on our feet before, right? Like, it happens. It's happened to me. But this? <laughs> Let me just tell you. It hurts so bad. It felt like my toe had been severed from my body. Like I was afraid to look down and see if my toe was still attached. So I like am crying and I hobble into my bedroom and I sit down and I just start sobbing. Part of it was because of the pain. Maybe like the first five minutes or so was because of genuine pain. But the rest of it was just like, (laughs) this day, what even is this day? I got robbed I got almost blown up, and then I go to try to take a bath to calm down, and whatever this is happens, right? By the time I calm down, like a full hour later, my foot is black. Like, it looks like it is attached to a corpse at the bottom of the ocean. Definitely broke my toe, if not like the, because it was kind of right at the base of my toe, so there might have been a little bit of foot bone action in the breakage there. Um, no, I did not go to the doctor because I had no time to be put in a boot or have them tape my toes together. Broken toes are just kind of lost causes, right? You deal with them. So I've been dealing with that now for about two months and, uh, the PTSD, I didn't, you know, I wasn't there. I didn't have a gun in my face. I didn't really lose anything of consequence, but just to feel so violated like that to have my peace disturbed and my security in that building that it's my space. I spend more time there than I spend at home. To have that violated in such a way, um, I have really struggled with. You know, when I was in my early 20s, I had a vehicle stolen out of my driveway and they found the vehicle about a week later and I refused to ever drive it again. I was like, no, just sell it. I'm I'm gonna get a different car. I'm not gonna drive that anymore. It's tainted. Well, you can't do that when it's a building. You have to go back. I had to go back the next day. And I love my store, and I hate that someone has been able to take so much from me. Um, As far as the candy bandit, as we call him, he is behind bars. He was actually on parole at the time. He had absconded from parole back in April, so he had been missing since April when this happened in December. And so he's got to serve out a bunch of sentences. I think I added them up and it was like 40 years worth or something crazy. He's got to serve a bunch of sentences um, for breaking his parole before he even gets charged with robbing my shop. And again, I wasn't his only victim that day. He had a couple shops across the street from me, as well as um, I believe the police said they think he hit like eight places that day alone and is responsible for just a ton of break-ins around the area. So doesn't sound like we'll be dealing with him again anytime soon, if at all. But the whole thing has just been such an ordeal. And um, yeah, this this first year of business ownership has not been the easiest on me, but <laughs> we we are making it through. So that's my crime story for this liquid cheese. Um, yeah, got robbed. Fun stuff. <laughs> 
So last week was our first true crime story time. Got another one coming up next week. Hope you guys are liking those little mini-sodes during the off weeks. I'm going to keep them up for as long as I can. A new full-length episode of So Dead is coming your way in a couple of weeks. In the meantime, you know, make sure you're following me on the socials, on TikTok under Scream Queen 517 on Facebook, the Facebook discussion group for the podcast. Just, yeah, lots of fun stuff going on there. So make sure you're following me and keeping up on the socials. And uh, as always, keep shining, you magnificent what the fucks.